Conversations with Kerry, a series of audio interactions with people and things in my world that I find interesting. If you have any comments, queries, questions or feedback, you can find me as at K-H-O-A-T-H on Twitter or email me k-e-r-r-y at g-o-t-s-s dot net Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello everybody and welcome to this episode of the podcast which is about my second computer. Now, I don't intend to do a podcast about every single computer I own. But the reason I'm covering these specific computers is because they are the computers that have shaped my introduction and experience with information technology. So I am talking about these computers because they have had a fundamental impact on my upbringing and my childhood and who I have become as a result of my interaction with these machines. So it was decided that around about 1989, 1990, I'm not sure the exact date, but it was decided that the Keynote XL was getting a bit long in the tooth. It wasn't really suitable for doing all of the things that I was doing at high school, such as the calculator and math and things like that. So it was decided to get me a computer which was known as a Keynote PC Plus. Now, the Keynote PC Plus was a Toshiba T1000 with a Symphonics speech board installed in the back of it. And in fact, these laptops had an expansion slot that would generally show up as communications port COM2 at port 0x2F8. I'm not exactly sure whether the IRQ3 line was driven by the card or whether the communications with the card was purely done in polling mode. I never actually disassembled the speech drivers to find out. But the Keynote PC Plus was a 4.77 megahertz 8088 with 640K of memory. It was exactly 640K of memory, 655,536 bytes of memory, minus, of course, the space required for the interrupt vector tables and the BIOS control areas, etc., and the room for the operating system. And it had a 640K battery-backed RAM disk, which was drive D. So you turn this thing on, it had a 720K, 3.5-inch double-density drive. It would boot off the ROM drive, which was theoretically 720K big, but it ended up being 
uh, smaller than that because there was a file that just took up a whole lot of space on there that didn't actually do anything. And it contained a copy of Toshiba DOS 2.11 V. Apparently the V was important. And you would turn this thing on and it would load DOS off the ROM drive. It would then chain load across to an auto exec bat file that lived on the D drive, which would then be responsible for loading up Keysoft. Keysoft was essentially the software that I had been using in the form of, of Keynote, got renamed to Keysoft. It was the same sort of word processor, but this one had been ported to the PCXT and ran on the Toshiba. So for the first little while, I would turn this computer on and I would use the word processor and I would use the file commands and the disks were twice as large as the ones in my Keynote XL. The Keynote XL disks only stored 360 kilobytes of data. These ones stored 720 kilobytes of data. But the interesting part of this machine was that you could actually get access to the command prompt. So... If you hit D for DOS from the main menu, I think it was D for DOS, it would open a command prompt. You could put in commands and have the output of those commands spoken back to you. Now, the problem with this was that there was actually no screen review mode. So if you missed the output of a command, you couldn't get it back. I mean, somebody who could see the screen could absolutely look at the liquid crystal display but you couldn't actually review back with speech and see what was on the screen and i remember my big dream for the toshiba t1000 was to get my hands on screen reading software because there was screen reading software for that system and when I originally used the machine, I had a lot of hacky workarounds to actually do things. One of the things I used to do was to press FN system request, which would pull up the overlay for the computer that would allow it to set the brightness and stuff of the screen. There was some inbuilt sort of BIOS control logic inside the Toshiba. And when you pressed escape out of that dialog to get rid of the system request dialog, when you pressed escape to get out of the dialogue, you would then have the screen redrawn from top to bottom, which would mean that you would then be able to read an entire screen full of information. So if a utility threw up material that wasn't written through the BIOS interfaces to the screen and it was written direct to video memory or bypassed the BIOS in some way, you could actually read the entire screen and see what was on the screen. And in certain circumstances, that would allow you to control various aspects of the system. Now, what I discovered was Pulse Data had actually made some modifications to this machine to stop people from doing things that they didn't want them to do, like changing boot device and basically reconfiguring some of the core parameters on the T1000 because it was felt that those machines would misbehave if you reconfigured them and ran them under 
Keysoft. So, of course, me being a teenager and curious and bored, wanted to get into this machine and discover as much as I could about it. So, I taught myself 8086 assembler language from a 69K file called the Assembler Language Tutorial, which was a set of notes from somebody's talk. And it taught me most of the basics of 8086 assembler. And I managed to make some modifications to the machine for me, which made it far more useful. So first of all, I got myself a copy of Flipper. And Flipper was a screen reader written by John Stephen Smith from Berkeley University, Professor John Stephen Smith. It gave me review mode. It gave me the ability to look at the screen. It gave me the ability to review the text on the screen. And it opened up a whole series of DOS applications that wrote directly to video memory that I previously wasn't able to access. Now, prior to this, I ended up playing things like Infocom text adventures and various other text adventures that I played with. And once I had the screen reader, that really allowed me to use a lot more programs on the machine. And I made friends with a fellow called Terry. I won't put his last name on this podcast. And he was a fellow assembly language coder. And I had finally found somebody who was messing with the coding for the 8086. And in some states, the 286. But, you know, nobody had a computer that was that powerful. And I started writing little utilities for the system. So, for example, I wrote a program called BeepDisk that would beep at different pitches depending on which BIOS call was made to the floppy drive. So you could tell whether the floppy drive was reading or writing or verifying or formatting. I also discovered that if you were clever, you could actually write a little program that you would hook into the boot sequence that would basically call int 18 to warm boot the machine. But when the machine warm booted, you could actually force the machine to come up off the battery backed RAM drive and load MS-DOS 3.3. Now you might ask yourself, why would you load MS-DOS 3.3 as opposed to Toshiba DOS 2.11V? It turned out that if you ran MS-DOS 3.3, you would then have access to 800 and 820K floppies using FD read and FD format. So basically the floppies would be formatted with 10 sectors per track and up to 82 tracks on the disk drive that came with Toshiba. So for somebody who was on a tight budget, an extra 100k on your floppy disk was well worth having, given the scarcity of funds at the time, me being a poor, starving student. So basically, I discovered that by warm booting the machine, I could get it to kick up DOS 3.3. I would then get it to load Keysoft. 
and then get into the software that I was usually using for school. Now, the problem was that there was only 640 kilobytes of space on the battery-backed RAM disk, so space was tight. And when I went to work experience for BHP Rod and Bar Steel Division in 1990, they gave me a whole pile of cover disks to look at and go through. And this was before I had access to a modem, and it was before I had access to bulletin board systems. So this was an absolute treasure trove of software that allowed me to experience a whole lot of interesting and different programs. And one of the programs I got out of that collection was a thing called LZXE, which was written by Fabra Spellard. And it was basically a program that would take executable files and compress them using a variant of the LZW compression algorithm and append a decompressing stub onto them so that you could make files on your computer smaller. And whilst they would take a little bit longer to load, you could actually have smaller executable files. And I remember digging into this stuff and figuring out, you know, how much space I could actually save because every byte counted. And I also discovered that some of the versions of the Microsoft Linker actually generated executable files that had a compressed reallocation table in them, memory allocation map. And if you use UPACXE from the LZXE distribution, you could unpack the memory reallocation table and get higher compression ratio from LZXE or other compression utilities. And in fact, what I did was I unpacked Keynote.exe and it basically went to 162,000 845 bytes once I unpacked the reallocation table. I then ran LZXE across that file and compressed the result down to 93,311 bytes, which allowed me to have a lot more space on the internal RAM disk. This, of course resulted in the computer taking longer to load up because a 4.77 megahertz processor is not particularly fast at data compression and data decompression. But it did allow me to pile more things onto my system that I was using for school. And any of the utilities that I wanted on my battery-backed RAM disk that I didn't require on floppies... I would actually compress. And I started by compressing executables with LZXE. And then I ended up moving to a utility called Diet, D-I-E-T, which was written by a, a Japanese fellow. And it was actually decompressed faster and I think had slightly better compression than LZXE. But this computer was nostalgic for me because it taught me the basics of programming. It taught me the basics of assembler coding. It was small enough for me to understand 
but it was complex enough to challenge me and give me things to play with. So I would write code for the system and compiling it using the A86 macro assembler by Eric Isaacson. And I also became quite a dab hand at debug. And the interesting thing about this system, as well as all of the quirks that I've previously mentioned, some of the utilities for Toshiba DOS 2.11v did not do DOS version checking. They didn't actually call function 31H of int 21 to retrieve the current DOS version. So I was actually able to use things like the DOS 2.11 version of debug, even though I was booted into MS-DOS 3.3. And the speech was the sort of symphonics, Arctic style speech that I was used to. I learnt the value of headphones because having the speech going out the speakers was very annoying to my classmates and very annoying to people that I was working with. Although unfortunately the PC speaker, which was under the front portion of the machine, was different to the speech synthesizer speaker. And I did install a program for key clicks, which I did try running in an English class, much to the annoyance of fellow students. So I had to uninstall that program. I thought it was amazing to have key click noises when I typed. However, the rest of my class did not agree with me. And I ended up disabling the program and apologizing to my fellow students. But I carried that computer around for most of my high school years. It broke a couple of times and I had to get it sent back to be repaired. I managed to collect a whole lot of dirt and dust and stuff inside the keyboard. And I learnt that keeping your laptop lid shut when you're not using the laptop was a very good idea. Otherwise, stuff from the environment would collect inside the computer and would make things very difficult. I would use this machine as a speech synthesizer for other machines and I would fire up a copy of MS Kermit. I did uh, try using Telex for this job. However, Telex was larger than MS Kermit and I also found that by compressing MS Kermit with LZXE or Diet, I could store a copy of it on my RAM disk, which made it more portable. So when I was using another IBM compatible computer, I would run a null modem cable between the IBM compatible computer and my laptop. I would load up a copy of MS Kermit on my laptop, and I would then load up a copy of ASAP or Flipper on the other computer and basically configure it for a generic speech synthesizer on whatever COM port I had the null modem on. And then when I wanted to silence speech, I would essentially hit Alt on two computers. Firstly, on the main computer and then secondly, on the machine doing the speaking. And that was how I got a speech synthesizer 
for other computers that I wanted to use. And I actually used that setup for about two or three years to gain access to various IBM computers. And it was clunky and it was difficult to operate and it was difficult to control, but it did give me access to computers that I otherwise wouldn't have had access to. And this was back in the time when screen readers weren't embedded into operating systems. We didn't have Narrator embedded in Windows. We didn't have VoiceOver embedded in the Mac or embedded in the iPhone or TalkBack in in the Droid. Screen readers were very expensive third-party pieces of software that were added onto a computer afterwards. And I would run these programs to give me access to more of the operating system and the programs that would run under it. Now, I don't know whether anybody's interested in a podcast on nostalgic screen reader experiences or more discussion on the environments and stuff of the early 90s, late 80s computing as far as accessibility was concerned. We'll see how people respond to this episode, whether my second computer nostalgia episode is a complete flop or whether it puts you to sleep on a rainy night. So if you have any comments, queries, questions, or any suggestions on things that you'd like me to talk about, please feel free to get in touch with me via email at k-e-r-r-y at g-o-t-s-s dot net. Or you can get in touch with me on Twitter as at k-h-o-a-t-h. So as always, thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed the podcast.